Hello, listeners. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I am joined by Mary Harrington, a contributing editor at Unheard. How are you, Mary? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Emmett. Yeah, it's great to have you. So today, we're going to... I've been trying to find somebody to talk about this with for a while, and... When I started reading your work, I got excited because you seemed like the person I wanted to talk to about it. Uh, because, and I've, I think I've ranted about this on the show, we now live in this moment where everything feels like porn to me, like it's mm-hmm. all just porn. I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so it feels like especially that way, I think. And... I wanted to just ask you very baldly up front, why is that happening? <laughs> why does everything feel like porn? Yeah. Um, straightforwardly, I think it's the internet. It's the, the, the attention economy. You know, mm. Everyone thought was going to be a democratizing force when it came along. And so it kind of has been in some ways. But the downside of having an attention economy is that thing is that the things that grab people's attention, you know, as advertisers recognized some time ago, aren't necessarily the the, the things which sort of you know lift our eyes to the horizon. You know, some some things which are good and important and useful, boring and take a long time to learn. Whereas mm-hmm. some of the things which which people want to stare at are really kind of gross. I mean, everybody everybody's felt the urge when you drive past a road traffic accident to crane your neck and see and see that see see if you can see any gore. Right, the things which fascinate people are not are not necessarily the 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 highest and greatest and most beautiful. And in fact, the thing the thing which attracts people's attention most viscerally and most quickly is anything anything exciting, anything erotic, anything voyeuristic. And when I say I think everything's become pornographic, I don't just mean everything has been reduced to a sort of spectacle of, you know, sexual of crude sexual gratification. I mean, I think everything has been turned into a spectacle full stop. Everything's mm. become become a something sort of voyeuristic. And if you think about what the, the relation that porn has to sex, I mean, sex can be amazing, beautiful, intimate, you know, extraordinary, wonderful experience. But in order to be that, it has to be private. Um, and it mm. has to be in the moment. And the moment you're you're out of yourself, you know, it it, it becomes some, something else that isn't that and becomes a lot less fun for one thing. And the moment it becomes a spectacle that you're performing for other people, then it becomes it, it, the 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 priority isn't to to attend to your partner, to to be in the moment, to in, to enjoy it. All of those it becomes it becomes about making it something that people want to look at, which which is a completely different set of priorities. So it becomes you know how how can I make this unusual? Or mm-hmm. grotesque, or dramatic, or and if you if you take that if you take that principle out of porn, that you know how do I make this something that people want to look at and just apply it to everything, then you have the the attention economy, and then if you and if you then give every individual the opportunity to, if if you like monetize themselves as individuals within that mm-hmm. attention economy, then what you have I think is a sort of general economy of you know, an economy of pornography of the self. So there's. I mean, I'm I'm complicit in this to an extent, in that I have I have some modest profile on the internet, and what I experience routinely and really wrestle with is this constant low level encouragement. I suppose it's a pressure, a temptation, perhaps, to make a spectacle of myself. Hmm. You know, you you know you're going to get more clicks if you say the slightly more extreme thing. You know, people will be more interested. You know, lots of people will notice if you have a massive fight with somebody else. You know, there are people who specialize in picking fights with bigger accounts than them. 
so that they can so as a way of as a way of gaining profile for themselves you know there's a whole there's a whole fight economy on the internet which is really just about boosting your individual self because everybody likes watching a fight you know a fight breaks out in the street people will turn and look it's, it's kind of interesting um or you can you can make a spectacle of yourself by by posting pictures of your kids or by you know making making intimate confessions to strangers. You know, there's a, there's a million and one different ways to do it. And the example I used in the essay that I wrote about pornography of the self was mukbang, which is a, is a sub, sub-genre of internet, of, of YouTube videos, where people very straightforwardly just eat massive quantities of food, which is just disgusting when you think about it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, food, food, like sex, food can be wonderful intimate you know incredibly complex area of social and cultural interchange right you know i mean you could you can you could do have entire have entire sort of geopolitical conversations through the medium of food it's it's complex and here people are just just guzzling you know people people who specialize in mukbang videos just sit there you know in embodying gluttony for you on the mm-hmm. internet and people watch this and then the guys who I gave the example of Nico Avocado, who's a particularly disturbed, disturbing example of this. Yeah, who's it's... an absolute phenomenon with with a net worth of you know several million from from YouTube videos. Who eats? You know, I mean, his his thing on YouTube is eating immense quantities of food and crying and fighting and having having dramas with his boyfriend, and that's his thing. And people watch this. Mm-hmm. You know, enormously. You know, enough people watch this to make Nico Avocado a millionaire. I think that tells you something about the attention economy and what people want to look at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the God, the Nicaro avocado thing, when that came across my feed, and you talk about it in the piece, but it was one of those things where I was just like, the probably the less I know about this, the better off I'm going to be. You know, just really all of the dark things you would expect to come out of the attention economy we've built. Like someone obviously hurting themselves in a very, as you say, pornographic way that is also over engagement in like one of the seven deadly sins, <laughs> you know, it's like too perfect almost. And then there it is right in front of you. And of course, people are incentivized to participate in this and to offer their children up as sacrifices in it as well. There was another very brief scandal not so long ago. I forget the name, but it was a woman who does, I think, beauty YouTube mm. videos, or she does, she diarizes her life or something anyway, so some some valley girl. And, and she was caught on camera telling her kid to pretend to cry because their dog was ill. Mm-hmm. And the kid's like, I don't have to pretend I am crying. And and then I think she she's deleted her whole account since because you know she accidentally uploaded this video without cutting the bit cutting that and everybody was like well so so actually all of this is all of this is completely staged and you're cynically exploiting you and it's like wait hang on a sec you didn't stop for a moment to think maybe she was cynically exploiting her children before you saw this clip right right I mean that's one of the things that's interesting about this is that Jacques Rancière likes to write about this the assumption that the spectator is passive. Is, I think, one that we should do away with, especially when we're thinking about this. I don't think that obtains anymore in the way that it might. It might have never obtained completely, but it seems harder to do that now when it is this digital environment that demands of the spectator as well. Absolutely. And I think if, you know, if you spend any time engaging online or you have any kind of of a profile, it's, it's, it's abundantly clear that you exist in dialogue with with your reply guys if you like all the time and you know provided provided you're um reasonably intentionally restrained about how you engage online there's 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 no reason why you shouldn't 
why why that sh- dialogue shouldn't exist, and it can be an interesting and creative and healthy one. I mean, people send me stuff at random out of the internet all the time. It's really nice, mm-hmm. you know. Occasionally, people will pop up in my on my timeline or in my feed, or you know, just to and pe- pe- yeah, people send me stuff. You know, I have I have random conversations pop out of the blue. It's great. But against that, there's always this pressure to feed more to the machine. You know, to stop when I'm out running and take pictures. You know, when I should actually just be running. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's always the attempt to, you know, to post pictures of my home or post pictures of my face. I don't even do, I very deliberately don't even do that. I mean, I, my face is out there on the internet. I post mm-hmm. under my own name. I'm not a non, you know, some people are very are considerably more secretive than me and, you know, often for good reason. But, you know, I I, I, I live in that shadow zone where I don't, I, I deliberately, you know, I, in internet terms, I dress very modestly. Yeah. I, 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 won't, I won't show anything below the neck. But... <laughs> But I mean, but I but I'm here under my own under my own name and and people do have sort of parasocial relationships with me as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ended up you know some it was quite a big account on Twitter the other day responded to something I'd said by saying you know I'm disappointed in you Mary because you you said X Y and Z and this seems out of character and I thought about it for a bit and then I was like what the fuck I don't I don't I don't even know who this guy is mm-hmm. like you know I have. How does he even have an opinion about my character? Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, we've we've never met, we've never we've never even exchanged messages before, and here he is. You know, obviously experiencing some quite intense emotion because you know something that I've done conflicts with an image he's formed for himself. You know, completely unsullied by any actual interaction with me, and that's that's an extraordinary thing. You know, and I suppose that's the backdrop against which all of this sort of. And pornography of the self happens because to a degree, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a fine illustration of the ways in which I'm, com- I'm complicit in, in that, that sort of attention economy. You know, perhaps I'm, I'm sort of rather more the intellectual end of it, but, but I'm still part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's still there's still a sense that you know it's like perhaps I'm I'm, I'm creating more the erotica of the self than the pornography of the self, but it's still part of the same economy. No, I think that's that's right. I had this moment when it was really after I got married that I decided I was going to make very different choices about what my relationship to the internet was, where I was like, this can no longer be this place where I weirdly diarize my own life to a bunch of strangers. I was like, whatever I have with my home life needs to be like totally separate from this because I don't want it to be polluted by what will become a need for the attention of strangers. And will obviously impact my relationship with my wife in ways that will become harder and harder to perceive. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think there's there's a really interesting way in which the the sort of the loyalties implicit in marriage and family life are radically at odds with mm-hmm. the pressures of the internet and the pressure to self exposure, and if you, you know sort of self commodification on the internet, all of which always implies that you're only ever one person. And there aren't other pe- there aren't other stakeholders in your sort of self. I, I, I can't self pornification, if you like. You know, whereas you know, very obviously, if you have a family life, and especially if you have kids, there are other stakeholders. You know, you can't you can't just go turning them into content. You know, so you know, I, I think I have once in my writing. I, I think I've included my husband once in my writing, and I, I was I was extremely careful to ask permission before doing that because otherwise, it's just completely not on. You can't mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. And I know there are people who do, but it's. You know, but that sort of thing can really affect your relationship. I don't even, I don't name him. You know, there are a, somebody, you know, somebody hostile could potentially, if I did, trace us back to where we live. You know, you, you just don't want to go there, do you? 
No, um, absolutely not. And if you're if you're married, then you know obviously your first loyalty is, is to your other half and to your children. It's not mm-hmm. it's not to your the the you know immense network of parasocial relationships or you know not so immense in my case a network of parasocial relationships that there are out there. You know, it's obviously your first loyalty is not to the reply guys; it's to your gut. But I think that's but but those two things are really intentioned. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about people who are basically popular on YouTube or whatever for vlogging, for living their lives just in this very in public way. And they have kids and the audience watches this whole process for years on end. And then the kids are born and the kids become part of the media product that they churn out. And I was struck by this feeling that I don't think anyone really thought any of this would last as long as it has. And now we're here. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people look shocked when I tell them I've been very online for 20 years. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I suppose makes me, I mean, I'm certainly not the first, first generation to adopt the internet, but the generation before me to adopt the internet were like full ball nerds. Yeah. Whereas I can't, I can't code. I was probably the first generation who can't code. And we're still able to be very online. So right. I suppose that kind of that leaves me looking looking in two directions. I can remember the before times, but it, but it, but it's now a very long time ago. I was talking with a friend about this the other day about like remembering the before times, and one of the things that you know I, I keep bringing this. I won't shut up about this because it won't leave me alone. Which is that. The experience of just being in a room feels different now because (laughs) of things like smartphones. It is as if the atmosphere is always thick with the potential of some kind of engagement where somehow the room felt emptier Mm -hmm. before all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And And there's there's always the possibility that somebody's attention could just slide away into the matrix. Right. And, and stop being present in whatever it is that you're doing right now, you know, all mm-hmm. the way down to really quite intimate things. Exactly. And I think I like that you brought up the opposition between this and uh, family life or married life or, or whatever, some sort of domestic sphere that's closed off. Um, yeah, I call it life in common. I think that's probably you know, I yeah. that phrase from the Catholics. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a, it's a sort of deliberately exclusionary space that you mm-hmm. create. You know, either either because you're born into it or because you've you you've taken your vows. But you you create it's a sort of little radical micro communism that you create mm-hmm. amongst yourselves, where you say, you know, now all of our interests are aligned, and you know, and we prioritize these any other any other little group in the world. This is the ultimate. This is this is the nucleus of the in group. And and that everything and that comes first always, um, and and that that sort of life in common is absolutely in tension with the idea of a public internet. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the things I find really interesting is the way um, the internet, you know, but all is certainly cert- over the last maybe five years, conversations, interesting conversations, have retreated from the public internet into something into you know a series of gate kept in groups. Yes, and I think that's a very significant and important thing. You know, that's it's partly res- it's res- partly responding just to the sheer number of people that are on the internet and how many of them you just don't want to be having a conversation with. <laughs> um, 
but it's also it's either it's either propelling or responding to cancel culture as well which incidentally i don't i don't think is wrong i think the the free speech it's more that the free speech absolutists have a set of have a set of ideals which are just out of kilter with the technology that they've created it's it's not possible to have free speech when absolutely everybody is online and participating in it you can only have free speech when when people who share your priors have a voice and everybody else doesn't at the moment, because there are some sets of priors that are just too different to reconcile in any sort of marketplace of ideas. And 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 the or this this is this is what's what's illustrated by the internet. There are some people who are just never going to agree. You can't argue about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin with somebody who doesn't believe in angels or pins. You just can't. Mm-hmm. And so one one of one of those one or the other will end up end up having to cancel themselves or each other. The only way you can really have that conversation is if you create a you you create a secret signal group in which everybody everybody is an is an angel angel respecter or mm-hmm. or, a, or a pin believer right. <laughs> right or whatever you know what whatever whatever the particular beliefs are that that you know constitute your group in 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 tension with some of the other groups that there are out there you know and there are there are plenty of plenty of points of disagreement and these groups just proliferate all over now um, because it's just the only way you can you can you know in a in a context where you know most conversation happens online in a very atomized world in real life terms. It's the only way you can have, you can constitute any sort of intimacy. Um, and you know, obviously then there are whole dynamics about, you know, does do things stay in group or don't they? And you know, that that all gets complicated in its own right. But I think it's I, I just think it's significant that everybody's recognized, everybody's just accepted that free speech is no longer a thing. You know, and there are there's a there's a little group out, a little group of dinosaurs out there who are still complaining and wanting us to go back to you know when everybody had rational debates in public. And no, it's it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. Everybody now has rational debates in private. Mm-hmm. And then they 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 offer up carefully curated byproducts of those debates in public. That sounds right. It seems to me. So we did a whole read through after Virtue by Alistair McIntyre, mm-hmm. and one of the things that struck me as we were going through that was just how much that irreconcilability problem seemed to be a feature in online life. Like you couldn't. Even if both sides were being completely rational, getting back to like the origin priors wasn't going to solve anything either. No, no, absolutely. I, I actually, I, I just, I just finished writing yesterday. This will make you laugh. One of the most extreme efforts I've ever made to bridge one of those unbridgeable gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the 2019 book Full Surrogacy Now. Oh, feminism man. against family. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, so, I'm delighted at the idea that you made the effort already. Okay, so 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 I I wrote I wrote about the book Full Surrogacy Now, and and for the for the implied readership of the magazine First Things. And now, if you and and I sat there, I sat there for ages trying to get my head around how on earth I was going to do her argument justice mm-hmm. um, to an or to a readership with such radically different priors. And I realised in the end that I couldn't do it without a two or three paragraph preamble explaining some of the basic assumptions mm-hmm. um, that, that that are never spelled out in the book because they're just part of the milieu in which the writer exists, but which are completely unintelligible to to you know a group of you know to America's Catholic intelligentsia. They're just like what the what the hell? Yeah, you know, what is like, this? How, how, yeah, what what is this? How how do people how how is it even possible to think like this? You mm-hmm. know, but I mean, you know, what is this person thinking? Is this person, you know, should we not just kill it with fire? Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Right. So, and you know, the and the easy the easy way to do that review would just be to write "kill it with fire" repeatedly for like twelve hundred words. But but that isn't that isn't quite where I'm coming from, and it's also it's also not very useful for the reader. But it was exceptionally challenging to try and to try and render that worldview in. And and I, and and I got to the end, and I was like, you know, this the, the readership is still isn't going to still isn't going to be sympathetic because actually, sure. when you you get to the bottom of it, and you and you realise that actually there's a there's a totally unbridgeable difference in priors. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the writer thinks there's no such thing as human nature, and the readers do. You can't get over that. Yeah, it's, you just it, can't. It's an it's an angels angels pins believers thing. Mm-hmm. You know, one one group thinks there's no angels to dance, and the other group is is watching them all on the head on the head of a pin it can't be done no no it's just today i also think one of the major divides that I, I think people are aware of but it doesn't get spoken of explicitly is those who would like for society to continue and those who don't want it to continue or or at least completely ambivalent as to yep. whether or not it continues yep. yeah 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 but i I've not written about it, but it's something I, I think about a lot, and I think I've tweeted about the the sense, the subtext that exists in some corners of liberal sort of sexual culture, which I, I treat straightforwardly as a death cult. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think of it. You know, the the antinatalist. You know, there's a there's a sort of direction of travel for personal empowerment, which is straightforwardly a death cult because it can't it it, it can't coexist with the idea of setting yourself to one side enough to have children. It just can't, and that 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 brings you out, and and especially where that intersects with a kind of naive environmentalism, you know, it turns it turns into a death cult. Oh, now you're speaking my language because I do yeah. a lot of energy advocacy and I write a lot on infrastructural energy issues. One of my value adds for the people there is that, you know, I have a tr- I have training in the great books and I can bring broader cultural insight into sort of what's happening here. And I've become increasingly convinced that there is a departure from even the dark Malthusianism of the 60s and 70s into just like a straightforward like left Schopenhauerianism. <laughs> yeah, like, and that's where I think that it is gone because the idea that you uh, to impact the earth is to sin, but yep. unfortunately, yep. to live is to impact the earth and to consume energy because that's right, what you exactly. must do to stay alive. Yeah, I, I prompted I prompted a very interesting Twitter argument in my own mentions not long ago about the meaning of the term rewild. It, it's not it's sort of adjacent, I suppose, to to the whole to arguments about energy. And I mean, then this is the nuts and bolts of this debate are not are not really I'm not so familiar with them. But it seems to me that you know there are some people who who want to talk about how you know we as custodians of the earth can reduce the scale of farming you know eliminate petrochemicals you know go back to go back to creating hedgerows you know accept accept our coexistence with and you know healthy interactions with you know wildlife that exists around the margins of us farming the land productively yada 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 and that that's that that's one picture of rewilding particularly in a densely populated and a densely populated country where people have been tilling the soil for like you know 20,000 years like the like the UK and then there's another group who are like no 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 what, what we should do is just herd all the people into tower blocks and feed them on soya slurry so we can release the wolves back into everywhere else mm-hmm. and like what mm-hmm. wait in in what in what way is this actually radically different to you know the, the the people who want to herd us all into the pod and feed us on bugs and you know stuck stick us all in the metaverse yeah. and, and and they just don't really care about the wilderness you know there's, there's there's barely there's barely a cigarette paper between them 
No, and I think that's what's interesting is that there's this sort of I was talking to Joey Keegan about this, the sort of healing of the middle, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Where there's this sort of tension between trade-offs and densities mm-hmm. that society needs to continue and then beautiful aspirations, things that we need to make life worth living. And it seems to me that it is often uh, a total either or and not a weighing on either side. And that feeds into this sort of pornographic spectacle of the fight that we've been talking about, where it ceases to be anything that would remotely resemble a democratic discourse and become something else entirely. Like I've been rereading Thucydides lately because I have to teach it next week. And, you know, there are all these moments where Pericles like scolds the Athenians. And I'm like, you can really only do this if you have radical democracy like this, because it is indeed they who made the decisions he's reminding them they made. And so they have to hold themselves accountable for better or for worse. But whatever we're doing is not like that. No, there's a sort of bitter zero-sum quality to it, which, mm-hmm. as you say, you know, instead of healing the middle, it does the opposite. It, 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 at every point, it attenuates the middle. Mm-hmm. And this is – actually, I wrote about this last – Last about this time last year, I did a sort of a review of a year of pandemic and a year of lockdowns. Mm. And I came to the conclusion that what, what pandemic control measures had done consistently across the board in conjunction with moving everything online was to apply internet power laws to absolutely everything, even mm-hmm. offline. But just to be to be clear by internet power laws, I mean the the 1990 principle. You know, 1%, 1% does most of the you know, people people were noticing this even in the very early days of social media when I was first very online. That you know, one percent of your users will 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 create most of the content, and nine percent will create most of the rest, and the ninety are just passive. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ayala, who who I'm sure you're aware of, yes, the the, the very online um, OnlyFans superstar mm-hmm. and uh, rationalist pinup girl, I suppose would be fair to describe her. <laughs> Um, yes. tweeted she 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 creates a lot of data she does a lot of research and she she tweeted a, a graph showing how OnlyFans content creators follow pretty much this template there's mm-hmm. a tiny percentage who earn most of the money then there's a the, the, then the graph drops off very quickly and you know there's there are people who earn a decent amount of money and the vast majority turn you know maybe a couple hundred couple hundred bucks a month and so I, I've 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 taken to referring to this as Ayala's law. Fittingly, as we're talking about the the internet pornification of everything, it's fitting that it should be it should be present most most spectacularly on OnlyFans, which really is literally a pornography of the self. But but it's a, it's a it's a power law which the pandemic has now rolled out to absolutely everything. You know, and anything where any any sort of you know community communi- any, any social structures created within communities offline for purposes you know that that were that are intimate and exclusionary and not not ordered by the spectacle have been mm-hmm. destroyed so mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't even possible to go to church scout groups closed down community groups closed down everything everything which was organized within the community which which forms thick community in specific places amongst specific people subgroups of people was 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 abolished and all mm-hmm. and the only form of community we had left was the the mass community of the spectacle online or or just our own if we're lucky if we were lucky enough to have a family going into the pandemic you know our own our own immediate families mm-hmm. and even then we weren't allowed to see to, to thicken that and what in any way at all, you know, by by adding grannies or extended family into the mix, not for a long time, mm-hmm. and the and the, the end result of a year of that was that anybody who who was dependent on those thick community structures for survival or quality of life, you know, found 
found themselves suffering acutely and that which which obviously gets worse the further down the socio-economic spectrum you go so anybody who was poor or who was lonely or who was vulnerable or who was disabled or you know in, in any way whatsoever dependent on on immediate community in that sort of geographic thick exclusionary sense suffered mm-hmm. acutely and anybody who was at the top of the pile you know had had financial resources or or was just very online already survived Ayala's law you know the pandemic rolled out Ayala's law offline and mm-hmm. continued the continued the process of annihilating the community structures in a way which actually the the facebook the the effect of facebook for example on local newspapers prefigured 15 years ago um yeah. Once upon a time, small ads went up in news in in news agents and local newspapers, and then Facebook came along and just re- one of my rules of thumb is that what the internet does is that it first it first it mediates a social community phenomenon, um, then it replaces it because the the real life the real world thing falls away because it's just easier to do it all on the internet, and then having having first mediated and then replaced. Um, a real world community phenomenon, it will then grotesquely parody it. And you can see that in pretty pretty much any medium you like. But, you know, local newspapers, for example, you know, first it, first it mediates the small ads in the local news, then it replaces them because the newspapers can't afford to compete. And then it grotesquely parodies them when you have Q. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I think there are also other things that happen with that too. My thinking is that during the pandemic, I thought a lot about Frank Ferrady's work. We we had him on to talk about his his Defense of Democracy book, which is a nice little book. But I kept coming back to his The Culture of Fear and our complete inability to weigh trade offs at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I have I have I had a friend. I have still a friend. <laughs> He's still alive and my friend. But he's been sober for a long time, and when the lockdowns kicked in. He said, it is unacceptable that we will be moving all of this online. Someone has to show up because people will suffer and people need to have a place where they can come. So I'm going to get emotional. What he did was he said, if this meeting isn't going to show up here, I'm going to rent it out personally and I will show up here at the same time every single day. So there's someone to keep the light on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Another another example of that from a completely different context. Now, this is this is a very British specific thing, and I don't know mm-hmm. if it happens in the United States. But so so horse equestrian culture is a, is a huge thing in Britain and has mm-hmm. been for centuries. Right? And riding stables in the UK tend to be staffed informally by twelve year old girls. Mm-hmm. They just are. Twelve year old girls love horses. A particular subset of twelve year old girls particularly loves mm-hmm. horses, and they tend to be the socially awkward ones. I mean, there's a, there's a. I mean, equestrian culture has this stereotypical image, which is sort of you know beautiful, rich girls whose parents buy them ponies and ferry them around. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that most provincial riding stables, like low key, hairy pony, like scruffy riding stables are staffed by socially awkward 12 year old girls who are having a terrible time at school and mm-hmm. would rather spend time with animals it's a vital um, third you know, place for them right it's a absolutely it's a vital third place for them you know maybe maybe some of them are struggling with other mental health issues maybe mm-hmm. some of them are, are, are low-key low-key you know non-neurotypical you know there are all, all kinds of reasons why a 12 year old girl could be having a terrible time at school and what they do is they they turn up at a riding school and they they shovel they shovel shit in mm-hmm. exchange for that they get riding lessons and they get to hang out with the animals and horses are great to hang out with because they don't judge you, yes. and and they're, they're they're for the most part gentle creatures and they're they're warm and they're hairy and you can give them a hug. It's you know it's great. I was one of those girls. And when the pandemic hit, theoretically these twelve-year-old girls were not able to go to the stables anymore. You ask any riding stables you like, which is and I've I've asked several who 
who who are run like this and they'll say we just ignored it we let the girls yep. come you have to we, and we, we just decided that we were all a bubble together mm-hmm there's just no way around it because otherwise these girls, you know, so they would have they would have started cutting again. They would have they would have just disappeared disappeared down the rabbit hole. They would have they, they would have they would have drowned. Yeah. So we so we 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 didn't say anything about it. Everybody kept it very quiet. They they kept coming. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think the amount of trust that has been lost yes. in large institutions as the internet has colonized and replaced those institutions and become an even shadow more shadowy as you said bizarre version of them is a problem of such immense scale it's difficult to even reckon the outlines of a solution yeah i mean the it's it's probably not very helpful to to start at the absolutely microscopic scale but that's, that's all i can really do I mean, one of the, but you know, as much as it's possible to resist that, you know, we talked already about marriage and I think actually, you know, forming, forming radical offline loyalties with, with people, with, mm-hmm. with, with somebody, you know, forming sort of lifelong, lifelong offline commitments to, to a lifelong offline commitment to another person, you know, in which to raise children is the first line of political resistance. It doesn't mm-hmm. get any more granular than that. Mm-hmm. You know, I suppose you could extend that to making the commitments you make to your friends, not to, not to expose them all. Um, turn them into pornography you know I'd, I put this slightly flippantly sometimes also just resisting the temptation to turn yourself into porn yes you know in a slightly flip way I like my formulation for this is lift but don't post physique yes <laughs> yeah. absolutely I've, you know I've... Lift and you know any any sort of physical practice um, is an act of resistance but the moment you the moment you succumb to the temptation to turn it into porn and yourself into porn with it you've lost you know, yes. you've just been you've just been re you've just been looped back into the machine again. Lift, but don't post physique. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. moment you do, you've lost. Well, let me ask you this. This is something that I've been asking people more often, and it's so you you have been very online for twenty years. You say, how has that experience changed the way you think? How has that? in responding to it, in growing with it, frankly, how has that changed you? It's hard to say because it's, you know, it's, it's a long time. The before times are some time ago now. I mean, I, I fell in love with the internet the first time I met it. I suppose I, I was a socially awkward, recently ex-horse girl, mm-hmm. um, about, about 19 years old when I first encountered the internet properly. And I, I fell in love with it. You know, I wanted to be the disembodied, the, the disembodied consciousness, you know, mm-hmm. in, the, in, a, in a world of text. It was it was a wonderful place where I could I I was like oh my god now I finally this you know I'm not stuck in small town Britain you know I can find my people you know the the promise of that is is immense especially if you're not very happy at school or in your own yes. community the promise you know it's 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 an enticing it's an absolutely intoxicating promise I spent my twenties feeling very idealistic about that I mean there's I could I could give you I could spend another hour talking about that but then the the upshot of all of that was that you know the scales fell fell from my eyes about you know what the internet is and does in a number of ways around around the same time as the the world that 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 first first created mass social media fell apart in the 2008 crash mm-hmm. um so those and the, the startup i was working in fell apart and I, I was partly responsible for that the the what i thought we were doing was not turned out not to be exactly what we were doing our friend and, and interpersonal friendships fell apart no it, it all went shit simultaneously basically in sort of very kind of metaphorically rich ways for thinking about you know how, how the world was changing 
And I spent, by the time I'd sorted through all of that in my mind, I was I was about, you know, seven years older and had qualified as a psychotherapist because I just mm-hmm. decided I wanted to do something, something which was about being offline and present in the moment and mm-hmm. something which was actually real in the world and that was to do with other people and not the internet. Now, I no longer practice as a psychotherapist. I've got I've been <laughs> subsequently sucked back into the discourse with a capital T and a capital D. You know, I'm, I sort of apparent. But yeah, but but that's but that sort of happened in parallel with you know be- becoming very much more concretely committed to to an offline life. You know, I got married, mm-hmm. I settled down, I have a home now, I have a child, and and simultaneously I've sort of re-entered the discourse in a much more critical way. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose that's that that gives you a very short outline of you know the the different stages. You know, idealism, disappointment, and withdrawal, mm-hmm. and then the the it lured me back in, but in a in an ambivalent way. And I suppose I exist as a sort of as somebody who's both you know hopelessly in hot to and complicit in the discourse, but also as kind of a, a critical presence on the margin of it. You know, for for better or worse, that's where I am now, and who knows who knows where I'll go in the future. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, Angela Nagel, I think, perfectly captured a lot of the contradictions or willful like blindness of internet boosterism that I was definitely part of growing mm-hmm. up. I mean, it just seemed so cool. Yeah. Even while horrific things were happening in front of my eyes, right, right, right. I, it's a, it, it was amazing its ability to dissuade you that that might indeed be a n- new norm arriving, right, rather than right, right, right. an outlier case you've just happened to encounter. Yeah, I remember everybody writing excitable books in the early noughties about you know here comes everybody and you know the the power of we and you know the the mm-hmm. revolution and all of this stuff about how you know disintermediation was was going to be this sort of fabulous democratizing force and nobody nobody stopped to think about what what would happen if we just centralized all of the all of the power of platforms in one place mm-hmm. everyone everyone was busy looking at the crowd and nobody was looking at what was who who owned what was mediating the crowd and actually I remember I remember making snitty remarks in a blog I can't even it's amazing I can remember this now about a guy called Andrew Keane who was he was he was a web2 entrepreneur for a little while and then I think whatever it was he was he was setting up didn't didn't go so well and he he emerged as the first really critical voice of web2 saying you know actually actually this is this is harming our discourse this is this is having all sorts of negative social side effects mm-hmm. and this this isn't all this isn't all kittens and puppies it's not is it it's not actually all of that great and people were like ah, shut up andrew you're only saying that you're only saying that because you're startup founded and actually you just suck at all of this um, come on <laughs> um but he was right Mm-hmm. He was completely right and absolutely, you know, he was, he was prophetic by about 15 years. You know, he's he's still out there, you know, making com- – I forget, he, he popped up on my radar again the other day. He's, he's he's another critical voice, but he was he was absolutely, absolutely prophetic in in seeing seeing the downsides and seeing seeing, you know, what, what exactly everybody was looking past in terms of in terms of emerging new norms, yeah. Yeah, it's well this it's hard to put language around the way in which we've become lonely mm-hmm. now with all of this as well, and the way in which the world feels endlessly inexplicable and at your door at all times. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I think part of that's also the, really the smartphone is the thing that mm-hmm. brings it all in 
mm-hmm. you know, b- before I had one of those, it, it was like, yeah, I'll just leave my phone here. It doesn't right. matter. But there was something about it, something about its frictionlessness too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah, think absolutely. I think the that Byung-Chul Han is right that there's like a weird smoothness to life now yeah. that is yeah, deeply yeah, yeah. violent huh. and we can <laughs> in some way and we just I, can't avoid it. I also have a theory that that smartphones have but I've not been able to I've, I've not had time to do the research on this to see if the data actually tracks but I have this gut feel that the the sharp fall off in people's in cigarette smoking pretty much exactly tracks the adoption mm. of smartphones because smartphone if you if you watch the way people behave with smartphones I'm I'm an ex smoker oh as am I <laughs> right. okay. uh, you don't need to convince me of this this theory. so, so co- coincidentally my my I, I stopped smoking pretty more you know really not very long after mm. I got my first smartphone you know maybe it's coincidence maybe it isn't but you know once once three G became pervasive and reliable mm. if you watch the way people behave with smartphones it's it's the exact same gesture as the way as the way people used to smoke when smoking was common because smoking wasn't even really about the nicotine hit a lot of the time it was about i want to i want to i want to take a step away from this social engagement and just mm-hmm. have a moment to myself that's that was that's that's really the behavior you know i i i just i need to just not be in work for a moment and take mm-hmm. and collect myself privately outside maybe i want to have an intimate conversation i i i, I can't stand sitting in this open plan office i just need to be need to be you know <laughs> myself to myself for a moment or two and that was that was when you take a cigarette break right and and these days you don't need to take a cigarette break because all you can do is all all you have to do is pick up your phone Mm -hmm. and then you hold it in front of your face like people used to hold the cigarette you know with the Mm -hmm. acrid smoke that keeps people at a distance and you could hold the cigarette in front of your face and you know and then it would create the barrier and you don't have to do that now because you can hold the phone up and that creates the barrier and then your and your attention is obviously taken up by it so Mm -hmm. so it's between me and you and and it's and I've I've drawn that sort of veil of privacy around myself. I'm in my own little world. Mm-hmm. Um, and people people don't have to smoke anymore because we just have smartphones. Yeah, yeah. Well, and well, I mean, I think what's interesting about that is that smoking could have as much a social as an antisocial, let's say, uh, right, exactly. role as well, too. Right? The, the, is the that- sharing the sharing of a cigarette, you know, the asking in, you know, approaching somebody to ask them for, you know, there's a whole there's a whole social lexicon. Yeah, uh, all the rituals that go into right. that that I miss against my uh, better judgment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I mean, that's why it's that's why it's addictive. It's because mm-hmm. it's it's because it's ambivalent. You know, we, we, you you can love it and hate it at the same time. And you know, so it is again with smartphone. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was when when my daughter was very young, you know, you spend a lot of time sat there breastfeeding, thinking about mm-hmm. nothing in particular. You know, it's 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 really nice. It's really enjoyable to be able to scroll Twitter at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's 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 also the case fairly straightforwardly that my ability to do that and sort of stay plugged into the discourse was was pretty much how I ended up. How I, how I ended up you know, writing in public now because that's you know I started out you know I, I started out as an anon writing about um, politics and stuff and you know ended up blogging again above when she was about two because I just had a little more, a little bit more time and you know here I am a couple of years later I'm slightly surprised that people read my stuff I I mean you're we'll link to it in the show notes people should absolutely read it I think it's fantastic I haven't yet read your piece in American Affairs but I'm very excited to get to it that is one of my favorite publications we jokingly call this the unofficial American Affairs show because we end up talking about so many of their articles are having guests on that have published there I wanted to ask you lately what's been taking up your time you know, what have you been thinking about when you'd like to be thinking about anything else? 
you know. What do I think about in the shower? What do I think about when I'm Yeah, that type of thing. Uh, Preoccupations. Uh, <laughs> I have to think about, you know, what's... No one cares about women. I think about, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a common refrain, but specifically what I mean, this is, this is something, something I haven't written yet. So I'm thinking out loud here. Um, but one of something which I mull over is the sense in which even amongst, even amongst people who call themselves feminist, nobody really gets engaged in something which is specific to women unless it suits wider political interests. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can give you examples from history. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the debate, the debate, for example, over the first attempt to bring in the Equal Rights Amendment in the in the US, mm-hmm. for example, you know, was a was a contest between the feminists who were thinking about working class factory women, mm-hmm. and and how how in fact an Equal Rights Amendment would disadvantage them because if you work if your work is physical, then obviously obviously you're not equal to men. Mm-hmm. Right. And in fact, what you need is sex specific protections, which would run absolutely counter to an equal rights amendment, mm-hmm. because you can't you can't lift such heavy loads. You can't work as many hours straight, etc. You know, you have you have babies, mm-hmm. etc. And so on. And um, so that's one set of political interests, which are really about they're about the economy. They're about class. They're about they're about the body. Mm-hmm. And then you have another set of political interests, which are, if, if you like, you know, upper bourgeois women who do knowledge work or who want to do knowledge work, who are saying, no, actually, what we need is, is a set of protection, a set of a set of laws which will protect us from being told that you know our, our bodies make us different to women. To, to men, because you know, well, there's, there's no, there's no, there's no earthly reason why I shouldn't be just as competent a lawyer as, as a guy with, as a man. You know, that, this is absurd. And so, you know, what what looks like, what looks like it, it should be, you know, a, a question about women is in fact a question about class and about bodies and about money. Um, and I think that's a that's a great illustrative example of of who of of you know how and why you know how and why political questions about women invariably become political questions. You know, they, they get bound up in political questions about all manner of other things. And, and, and it's, it's striking that the Equal Rights Amendment keeps coming back, you know, just, and it keeps being fought back by women who are like, no, 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 actually, this doesn't apply to all of us. You can't apply this universally mm-hmm. because, you know, something which, which is purportedly about, you know, universal questions of sex, you know, is, is just invariably bound up in in much more specific things. So that's one example. Another, another really quite volatile and you know radioactive context in which this comes up is the 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 UK specific phenomenon of grooming gangs, you know, in which young, predominantly white working class girls in depressed provincial towns up and down the country have been groomed into into you know industrialized rape basically by by men who've who've lured them in and then and then kept kept them kept them in, engaged with this through threats. And threats and violence and staggeringly you know, really bleak. Staggeringly bleak. And and for the for the longest time, people just people just turned their eyes away from this. And you know, Jesus. this is this has prompted an immense amount of you know fury on the right because the ethnic and so you know the ethnic and religious details of the men was typically you know it, there was a racialized element to it, which mm. is just indisputable and it's very visible every time there's a prosecution. And so and so then it became an argument on the right. It became an argument about immigration and about the the ex, the costs of political correctness, whereas on the left it's an argument about safeguarding and it's about procedures and it's about institutional sexism in the police. So again, you know this 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 as you say, staggeringly bleak, you know, thing which has happened becomes a sort of Rorschach inkblot, mm. depending on your political orientations. And these two, these two perspectives are just incommensurable. And, you know, obviously I'm, 
I I have my my own preoccupations. So I look at the I look at the Rorschach ink blot and I see you know actually these girls are also casualties of sexual liberalism, because you know which which you know just turns its turns its gaze away from the fact that a subset of men are always going to be interested in very young girls and you can track them. That's that's evident throughout the ages. And you know if you if you mm-hmm. add that to you know libertine sexual mores and fatherlessness in inner cities, you're going to end up with some you're going to end up with some very miserable girls being very badly treated. So so again you know what. What looks on the on the face of it like a question about women becomes becomes much you know, you know depending on how you look at it and depending on your political priorities and your political priorities it takes on a very different characteristic. So I mean, so I suppose to say it's it's not quite this it's not quite to say no one cares about women, as to say that questions questions about women are always questions about something else as well, mm-hmm. and. And, and I find I find it very interesting, you know, when you look at how fractious the history of feminism is, to ask the question, why is it that this voice won out and this one, the other one didn't? Then there's a there's a persistent there's a persistent sort of second string in feminism, which is always about motherhood. But it's but somehow somehow mainstream feminism is never about motherhood. It's always about if effectively the repudiation of motherhood, and that, you know we're, we're not just mothers, we're not just breeders, we're not just yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not just our uteruses. Or you know, increasingly in the in the present day, we don't even need to be female to be women mm-hmm. and and yet there's this persistent second string that's that's you know very much preoccupied with questions of motherhood you know just to take a micro micro microscopic example of you know how this tension plays out i was reading a feminist journal from the 1980s which reports a, a meeting of a, of a radical feminist group somewhere in the uk where a vote was taken about whether or not to to institute a crash for this for this women's center and the and it was voted down because the women who would have voted for it weren't there because they were looking after their kids Yep. Yeah. I think when I take a, I mean, sorry, I'm just sort of like reeling from the description of what happens to those young girls still. But what I will say is to bring this back to where we were at the beginning of this conversation, the dynamics that we see play out, it is amazing how, because I don't think this happens with just women, the dynamic is how everything becomes a weird like stalking horse machine. Yep. And that that is part of the performance in public around outrage and setting up new mores or figuring out how to create a context in which to even have the types of disagreements that we're having now. And because of the needs of the attention economy and because of their public nature, it will always end up becoming about tertiary issues that are really mm-hmm. covering up what's actually at stake. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It always becomes about something that it isn't about. Right. It's the stocking horse to the Trojan horse. Right. It's sort of like right. how it works, right? Because it's like, well, surely no one can disagree with like this type of thing I'm saying. And there are enough people that agree with me that I can like hide this major issue behind it. And then if I do that for long enough, I might be able to smuggle explosively different things that people might not actually agree with into whatever I'm doing if I can keep this game up for long enough. Yeah, I think that's right. It was I'm hesitant to you know, set foot on this territory because this it isn't my country. But I suppose this happened in the UK as well. That I was I was 
it was interesting to watch last summer when the BLM riots were taking place. And actually, this mm-hmm. did happen in Britain as well as in the US, although the it's inflected differently because obviously our racial politics is different for historical yes. reasons. Well, it's also the Hobbsbaum thing, right? Is that everybody right. lives in their own country as, and then America as well in their heads? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in, indisputably. But it was it was interesting to watch, you know, some something which was actually very ambi- um, very ambiguous in terms of what it meant or what was driving it, but which, you know, to 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 some extent, in my opinion at least, was just it it was about energy release at the at the crudest level. You know, mm-hmm. you, you you locked locked young people up without without access to casual sex, nightclubs, alcohol, or you know, each other in mm-hmm. any in any meaningful way whatsoever for months on end. You know, some of them in really quite miserable, impoverished, alienated, lonely circumstances. And then and then anybody's anybody's surprised when they all just come out on the streets and want to smash things. I mean, you know, what do you expect? Mm-hmm. You know, at the at the sort of crude, crude energetic level, it, it felt to me like there was there was a huge amount of that going on. But then there was the but then there was this contest which took place secondarily about what it meant. You know, it started out being you know it was about race and it was about poverty and it was you know all of these things which are real issues. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's not as it's not as though there's no racism. Of course, there's you know racism is, is endemic and it's horrible. And so is poverty. And so is you know the the shrinking of opportunities for the young and you know the, just how much urban life sucks and you know we're all increasingly alienated and. Mm-hmm. Young people are atomized and nobody can set up homes and form families. And, you know, all, all of this stuff is real. And, you know, you, it's it's not difficult to find it's not difficult to find people who can testify to it and, you know, immensely convincing data on it. And then secondarily, you know, ter- in a sort of the sort of tertiary level, they, it was it was it was fascinating to watch that to being looped back, be sort of reinstitutionalized, if you like, mm-hmm. you know, a an elite with a well-developed vocabulary emerged to tell to tell us all what it meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are the people, you know, coming out of com- coming out of critical studies in the universities and critical race theory, and you know, all of these these critical practices, which are you know grounded in you know twentieth century you know, French philosophy and twentieth century theory, and all of these sort of um, ideological uh, structures, which have which have developed on the basis of that kind of intellectual framework. Who said actually, you know, that this is what it means. This means that. You know, we need to dismantle X, Y, and Z, and we need to take down statues. And some, somehow, some, somehow, suddenly, it, it stopped being about you know the immiseration of young people. You know, which is just objectively, it's, it's self-evidently a fact to anybody who has eyes and a functioning brain. Mm-hmm. It became about taking down fucking statues. And you're like, are you kidding? You know, most of the kids who are out on the streets rioting were white. You know, they're all, they're all they all hate this. They're all miserable as well. You know, mm-hmm. in what meaningful sense is it going to change anything for anybody to take down a bunch of statues? But then suddenly, you know, you've got organisations popping up. You know, who are collecting funding, and people sort of, you know, creating creating new new roles on in institutions to to adjudicate on which statues should or shouldn't be taken down, or you know, which which curricula should be decolonised. And you know, suddenly there's a whole, you know. Instead of instead of becoming about addressing the very real immiseration of young people, you know, actually, particularly the the middle, as we were talking about earlier, the the kids in the middle who one at one point in the twentieth century might have been able to look forward to, you know, a, a meaningful, enjoyable, you know, optimistic bourgeois existence, you know, who are who are facing life as a sort of nouveau pauvre, you know, fake bourgeoisie that, that gets mm-hmm. to look bourgeois on the internet, but actually leads pretty sucky lives in mm-hmm. in the material world. You know these 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 are the kids who are angry. Let's mm-hmm. face it. You know the the disgruntled elites who've been overproduced and, and are now looking at looking at what the bait and switch yeah, actually means in practice. I mean, I've I've lived this life embarrassed at thinning prospects. Right, you know, embarrassed at thinning prospects. Th- that's that's the feeling. 
You know, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about how this turns into an economy. Yeah. And it is that as soon as there's a social crisis, there is a need an economy. to solve that crisis, usually through middle-class NGO jobs mm-hmm. for the type of person who's going to explain this with the suite of theoretical tools they picked up in undergrad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend Samantha Matrix coined the term angiocracy. And yeah. I think it's it's thickening and proliferation is, you know, it's partly partly a pragmatic response to the overproduction of elites because it's it's something for them to do. But it's also it's also a factor in acce- accelerating that process because it the more NGOs there are helping, quote unquote, the more difficult the more difficult it becomes to do anything. Yes, absolutely. And they become people you have to deal with at town hall meetings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they always have more money than you and whatever, whatever. That's that's it forever. I'd like to take the time to wrap up now because I know you have a busy day ahead of you, I am sure. And I really appreciate you taking time out of it to speak with me. This was delightful. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. And where can people find you? Before uh, I let you go? Most of my writing is unheard, W-H-U-N-H-E-R-D. Dot com, mm-hmm. where I'm a contributing editor and I write a weekly column. And my, my website is reactionaryfeminist.com. And mm-hmm. you can you can find a link to my Substack and you know about, a bit about my forthcoming book and so on and so forth. And on Twitter, you're moving circles? I'm moving circles on Twitter, yeah. That's right. Okay. So people who are curious about that can find that in the show notes. Uh, thank you all for listening. Stay safe out there and we will see you next time.